0: Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we feature the music from Sleepers, made in 1996. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. I sat down in the theater on October 1996, ready to watch a film featuring some very famous actors tell the story of four boys whose lives are changed forever when a prank goes horribly wrong. The names appearing on the screen during the opening credit read like a who's who of top actors at the time. Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, Kevin Bacon, Brad Pitt. Plus, there were some actors who were on the rise as well. Jason Patrick, Billy Crudup, and Minnie Driver but all of those names meant nothing once John Williams' name flashed on the screen. I did not know he was involved with sleepers before buying a ticket that day, and seeing his name increased my excitement about the film. When the film was over, I was impressed by what I had heard from John Williams, but not blown away. I was impressed because it featured a different sound than I had heard from Williams, But at the same time, I felt let down that there wasn't a big John Williams fanfare or theme that stuck in my head after the movie ended. And now, with the knowledge of the past 77 movies featuring John Williams' music before Sleepers, it impresses me a little bit more as a score that sounds much different from pretty much anything else he had ever composed. Sleepers was directed by Barry Levinson, who had won a directing Oscar for Rain Man in 1989. He wrote and or directed a lot of great films in the 1980s and 1990s besides Rain Man. His first job as director was Diner, a great story about five friends whose relationships change over the years. He followed it up with The Natural, Good Morning Vietnam, Avalon, and Bugsy, just to name a few. As you can tell, Levinson did not stick with one particular genre or message in his films. To try and pigeonhole him would be quite difficult. When it came time to make Sleepers, Levinson had worked with some very good composers. Randy Newman and Hans Zimmer both worked on two films each with Levinson before Sleepers. Newman scored The Natural and Avalon, while Zimmer wrote music for Rain Man and Toys. At the time of Sleepers, Newman was hard at work with the animated film James and the Giant Peach, while Zimmer seemed to be bogged down with work on The Preacher's Wife. Whether or not Levinson reached out to his best collaborators is unknown, though we can all agree that Randy Newman wouldn't be the best choice for the very dark story in Sleepers. The music that Williams wrote for Sleepers has a couple of Zimmer touches to it, so I wonder if Levinson had the German composer in mind. The events that take place in Sleepers are based on a true story, or so our narrator says. Even the original novel's author and the main character share the same name. There was a New York Times article in fall 1996 that tried to question the validity of the events, which the author of the book, Lorenzo Carcaterra, asserts as truthful, even though some names and dates were changed. Hollywood executives did like the story and the publicity it was getting, and Warner Brothers snatched up the film rights for $2 million after the book was published in 1995. And as I said before, Levinson got some good actors to tell this story. Dustin Hoffman was back with Levinson eight years after the two scored big with Rain Man. As for Kevin Bacon, he made his big film breakthrough in Diner, and he was back with Levinson 14 years later. This was De Niro's first film with Levinson, and he plays a street-tough priest like he's been portraying that character all his life. Brad Pitt was the bigger star of the rest of the cast. He was on a hot streak after being in Legends of the Fall and Interview with the Vampire in 1994, then getting an Oscar nomination for 12 Monkeys in 1995. As for Jason Patrick, who played Carcaterra as an adult, his biggest film before this was in 1991 as an undercover cop in Rush. So this was an opportunity for Patrick to break big into the big leagues as an actor. Filming wasn't rushed, but the decision was made to get the film out quickly before the controversy surrounding the tale's truthfulness died down. Brad Pitt, Minnie Driver, and Dustin Hoffman were the only top-billed cast members not to have grown up in or around New York City, and the authenticity the rest of the homegrown actors brought to Sleepers gives the film a gritty urban feel, and that translated somewhat to the score. I said earlier that my first impression of Williams' music for sleepers was that it was unlike anything he had done before. And that's true. This was one of his most modern scores, which means that it doesn't rely heavily on the classical music techniques and orchestrations that brought a lot of fame to John Williams. What really stands out is the score uses a lot of electronic instruments that blends in well with the movie, probably his strongest use of synthesizers since Heartbeats in 1981. The music for the opening credits starts out with a lonely and somber horn, followed by the flute. At this point, this is the John Williams we're used to hearing. here come the electric basses to give it some edge and take us into new territory musically. Parts of this opening title music, and even parts of the rest of the score, feel similar in tone to James Newton Howard's work in The Fugitive three years earlier. Very urban and very slick. I sense that Jerry Goldsmith also might have done well with this film, though he might have over-intensified his music. This might have been the type of music Williams has longed to write for a film, but has never had the opportunity. So the two musicians who played the French horn and the flute in the opening credits got some credit in the movie. Janet Ferguson was the flute soloist, while James Thatcher handled the French horn solos. Ferguson and Thatcher deserve the credit they got because they do add to the heart of the music and stand out above the electronic music. Thatcher's French horn will be responsible for the heavier main theme, which I feel will represent the tragic events that are about to come. Ferguson and her flute will come in to highlight the innocence of the four boys, and in some cases, the loss of that innocence. The development of this thematic material is hard to follow in this film because Williams is relying more on tonality than melody in this score. The boys pull a prank on a hot dog stand vendor, stealing his cart and threatening to let it tumble down some subway stairs. They lose their grip on the cart and it takes that tumble, severely injuring a man at the bottom of the stairs. The theft of the cart used the song Give Me Some Lovin' by the Spencer Davis group. Then as the cart flies down the stairs, I think it's a combination of real sounds of the approaching subway train and modified synthesizer sounds, but it's not really music. The boys are sentenced to about 18 months in a penitentiary for juvenile delinquents. Before they are sentenced, Lorenzo goes to church for his duties as an altar boy, where he has a deep conversation with De Niro's father Bobby. James Thatcher's French horn brings us into the scene with the main theme, but that electric bass is always underneath. As Lorenzo begins to realize that he has to accept his punishment for the injury to the man in the subway, the synthesizers come in with the childhood theme as he begins weeping. It's interesting that the synthesizers take over the performance of the childhood theme here. Janet Ferguson's flute would have been more touching. If you own the soundtrack of The Sleeper's score, this track I just played is titled Father Bobby's Decision, so it's grossly mislabeled. I had been playing it a lot to try and sync it with the scenes later in the film when Father Bobby has to decide whether to take part in the trial, but the music didn't fit, and now I understand why. The boys are taken to the Wilkinson home for boys to serve out their 18-month sentence, and they encounter four guards who mentally, physically, and sexually abuse them repeatedly. It's during this time that Williams produces the standout cue of the film. The boys are challenged to a game of touch football against the guards, and the boys figure this is their way to get even. The whole scene is filmed in a strange blue hue, and it feels electronically charged before the first spike of the ball. John Williams starts off with a building intensity as the boys prepare their strategy. What follows is and isn't quintessential John Williams' action scoring. It has the driving rhythm that he knows how to employ in his action music, and though there is a melody playing underneath, it's not the primary focus. Though he's been heading in this direction with his action music lately, particularly in Jurassic Park, this cue is an excellent example of how Williams will shape his action music going forward. He's creating a feeling with this music, very macho and it's the only moment in the film when the full orchestra stretches its legs. Nothing else in the score sounds like this, so it's definitely a standout cue in the literal sense of the word. The trumpet players making occasional punctuated appearances are nice, though this music belongs to the drum and tambourine players who keep this running on the same course as the rest of the score. Very modern and slick. Lorenzo is released from the boys' prison early, and the guards decide to have one more secret gathering with the four boys. The music to start this scene brings us the main theme played sorrowfully as the boys vow to never speak of the abuse they suffered. Musically, this signifies the official end of the boys' innocence. and the music takes a dark turn as the guards escort the boys down to the basement once more. The camera flies down the tunnel and we're transported 13 years into the future when we see two men walk down the street propelled by an ominous piano performance. One of the techniques Williams employs in the score is an ostinato that plays during a lot of the second half of the film, when the boys have grown up. Two of them run into one of the guards who sexually and physically abused them at the boys' prison and shoot him point-blank. They are charged with murder, and one of the other friends volunteers to be the prosecuting attorney with designs to rig the case in order to get a not-guilty verdict. Lorenzo is the one helping to make sure the witnesses don't testify, and to eventually get De Niro's father Bobby to lie on the stand and say the two were with him the night of the murder. The music played during the staging of this plan features the nice ostinato on synthesizers, and the woodwinds as well, and it makes this plan feel urgent. The ostinato you hear, whether intentional or not, seems to reference the Dies ray that pops up a lot in John Williams' scores. If you listened to David Kay and I talk about it in the Jurassic Park episode, you remember that this melody had its origins in Requiem Masses, and composers were criticized for placing it into secular compositions. We also mentioned that it would appear in Sleepers, and I think the Dies ray melody, which goes like this, was a jumping-off point for this ostinato, and it's fitting because there is a deep religious subplot going on in the story. That religious subplot is made very obvious in a scene when adult Lorenzo goes to church and prays with his rosary. Holding the rosary brings back a chilling flashback at the boy's prison when he's brutally raped by a guard. Music gets more intense as the flashback begins. Offsetting this tough scene is a children's choir in the score. Williams makes an interesting choice for the music that plays as the not-guilty verdict is read. Though everyone is celebrating on screen, well, except for Michael, the prosecuting attorney, the music stays muted and a bit remorseful. The price of that not-guilty verdict was high. Lorenzo had to convince Father Bobby to lie, and the two men obviously killed the guard but were able to walk free. It's not until a month later that there is some sense of happiness when the gang reunites for the last time. Janet Ferguson's flute helped us along for that more innocent time when all four of them were just punk kids in the Hell's Kitchen. The score at this point is broken up by a character singing Walk Like a Man, and then returns as we learn of everyone's lives after that final reunion. The two who killed the guard died young, and the music mourns their deaths. Then Barry Levinson chooses to close the film on the happiest moment in their lives, when the boys won a singing contest in school. And that's when John Williams can finally let the music celebrate, giving us optimistic chord progressions for the first time. Come to think of it, I think the final few seconds tell us this happy moment isn't going to last, bringing us back down to reality with the return of that Dies Ray slash Revenge ostinato. The end credits give us a reprise of the Dies Ray ostinato, then Janet Ferguson gets an encore on the flute. The music is about to get much more dramatic here. That comes from the second track on the CD called Hell's Kitchen. I read a discussion of the score on the John Williams fan network, and it seems like no one has seen the movie because they keep asking if Hell's Kitchen was written just for the soundtrack. Well, I'm here to say that it is the end credits music, and it's odd that it's the second track on the CD and not the last one. This harkens back to what Williams used to do when he had his soundtracks released on vinyl records, but I don't know why he would do it for the CD. So it's no surprise that Sleepers made $165 million at the box office. As I said, Brad Pitt was the biggest star in Hollywood and was voted Sexiest Man Alive in 1995. So just having his name in the credits helped the movie. As I said, I was impressed by the score, but I didn't think it was outstanding. But apparently the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences did not agree with my assessment. John Williams received a nomination in the original Dramatic Score category, in the second year that the Academy split the score category in two. I was surprised to see the film's title among the five dramatic score nominees that year, though it was a relatively weak year for dramatic scoring. Outside of the eventual Best Picture winner, The English Patient, not many of the year's top films had standout scores. I will say, however, that I found David Arnold's score to Independence Day quite good though it's possible many viewed the music and the movie itself as a ripoff to Star Wars. In any case, this nomination was very good news for John Williams, who would make some history with it. It was his 26th nomination for Original Score, making him the outright owner of the record for the most Original Score nominations. He had shared it with the legendary Max Steiner when he scored number 25 the year before. Adding in his Adapted Score nominations and his Song nominations, John Williams scored nomination number 35 with Sleepers. It would tie him with Edith Head for fourth on the list of all-time Oscar nominations. So when would he break that tie and stand alone in fourth place? We'll find out on an upcoming episode of The Baton. By the time John Williams was waiting to hear if he would win the Oscar for sleepers, which he did not, since it was definitely the year of the English patient, he was already celebrated worldwide for another great contribution to the Olympics. It should be no surprise that Williams was asked to write music for the 1996 Olympics since it was being held in Atlanta, Georgia, and he was pretty much America's composer. After a successful composition for the 1984 Games, Williams put pencil to paper and turned out another great piece. And it was as far from his work on sleepers as you could get, with bold trumpets and lush orchestration heralding the strength of the men and women who would participate in the Olympic Games. Fittingly, the piece is titled Summon the Heroes, comes our friend Tim Morrison on the solo trumpet John Williams conducted this piece live at the opening ceremonies of the 1996 Olympics, and I remember watching him with delight. It was the first time I had seen Williams conduct an orchestra, and it was then that I resolved to see him conduct an orchestra in person. It would take eight years, but it would eventually happen. Though the previous two themes Williams wrote for the Olympics received Grammy nominations, some in the heroes did not. It is a very rousing six-minute composition, and it is my second favorite of his four Olympic compositions after the 1984 theme. Anyway, John Williams just had one score released in 1996, but he seemed to remain in very high demand. His old buddy Steven Spielberg was getting back in the director's chair for two movies in 1997, having taken a few years off after the stress of Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. There was going to be a sequel to Jurassic Park, of course, and that would be followed by a film about African slaves, which would kick off a new business venture for Spielberg. In addition to those two films, Williams was going to work on two others, both of which didn't on the surface seem like attractive projects for the maestro, but he took them on and we'll discuss all four of these films in the next four episodes of The Baton. Well, thanks, everybody. It was so much fun looking back at John Williams' work in 1996, and I'm glad you were here for it. As always, please feel free to chime in with your thoughts on the show with an email to jeffswim at AOL.com or write to my Twitter handle, jeffswim. And as always, I look forward to seeing reviews you post on Apple Podcasts, so please consider doing so. Thanks for joining me, and until next time, the baton is down.